Sefer Yoshua Perik Yud, the 10th chapter, the book of Joshua, Nachyomi for the Orthodox Union, Rabbi Bini Marilis. The 10th Perik of the Sefer of Yoshua details one of the great miracles and the great events that maybe has ever happened for the Jewish people. We talk about Yamsuf, we talk about Hasinai, of course, miraculous events. We talk about Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, the leaving of Egypt, of course, miraculous event. In the time of Yehoshua already, we've seen Yardane, we've seen the crossing of the Jordan, we've seen Jericho and Yericho. We've seen already miraculous events. But the magnitude and the, the, the monumentous nature of Hashemesh Begivondom by Yareach Beimek alone, the notion of stopping the sun in its tracks, which is the very heart of the Perek, the very heart of the chapter, is worthy of discussion. Yoshua is a very powerful military leader. The Jewish people are a very powerful military group. They've already destroyed a good number of people and are set to destroy many, many more. Their success is guaranteed by the Word of God. So one can ask the question as to what is the nature of the miracle? Of course, we can discuss how it happens, but what's the nature of it? What's the need for it, per se? Let's begin. Adonit Zedek, the king of Yerushalayim, hears about all that Yehoshua, interesting, he only mentions the name Yehoshua, all that Yehoshua had done to Ai, and that he had done to Yericho and to its king, and that the people of Giv'on had uh, essentially given up at making a treaty with the Jewish people, and they become part of them. By Yubikirba means they become amongst them, they're part of them that they moved in a certain sense into the Jewish people, albeit not full-fledged members of the Jewish people. He sees this, he hears about this, and they're very afraid. It's a big city, Givon. It's not a small town. It's not a one-horse town. It's a big town. A lot of people. And that town is giving up. So his concern is twofold. One, that such a big town is doing it. Two, perhaps, is the notion of confidence with respect to other tribes and other kingdoms. What are they going to do now? It's a very big city. It's bigger than I. And all of its people are strong. So strategically, it seems a bit of a, a problem for him and for other nations. If Givon gives up. So what does he do? He gets together a conglomerate, a, a multinational force that is to fight the Jewish people. Yishlach Adonit Tzedek Melech Yushalayim in verse 3, El Hoham Melech Hevron, Vel Piram Melech Yamus, Vel Yafia Melech Lachish, Vel Devir Melech Eglon Limor. He sends messages to four other kings. They're all approximately in a region similar to Yushalayim, but essentially, as we mentioned, that Yoshua has been dealing with particularly cities in the south, in the central and southern regions of Israel, and that's who he's fighting. And these, in fact, are the continuation of those types of cities. And he says to them as follows, Alu Eli Givon. He says, come and join me and let us hit and let us destroy and let us fight and let us attack Givon. Yehoshua Yisrael. 
because they have set some sort of a peace, some sort of a relationship with Yoshua, with Joshua himself, and the Jewish people. Why specifically Givon? So perhaps it's two two possibilities. The Datso from writes, V'nakez Givon, we should hit Givon, literally. They're traitors. So as a punishment to them, as traitors, they, they, they should be attacked and destroyed. Another uh, approach is simply, by virtue of attacking Givon, perhaps they're going to draw Yehoshua into battle and maybe defeat him when he's not in mode, when he's not in battle mode, when he's not establishing the method and mode of the war itself. In verse 5, they gather together, and they go together to Giv'on, they begin to battle at Giv'on. Immediately, the people of Giv'on give up, right? They're not going to destroy them themselves, and they send out messengers, SOS, 911 call, to Yehoshua and the Jewish people. Don't hold back from us. Don't hold back your hands from us. Help us out, your servants, your slaves, the people of Givon. Join us. Come up to us immediately and and save us. Bring salvation and help to us as we're under attack. Because all of these all of the Amorite kings have joined against us together. Immediately, Yoshua responds. Again, it's a very, it's, it's a connection and a relationship to what we mentioned before. Subtly, in the text, is the notion of going above the letter of the law. Yoshua's deal with Givon, it would seem, was simply that he wouldn't kill them. If they get killed by somebody else, that's not his problem. But here he goes out of his way. This is a partner. We made a deal with them. We've signed an agreement with them. Immediately he goes to war for them. And in verse Chas, HaKadosh Baruch Hu speaks to Yoshua. Don't be afraid. What's the fear? What's Yoshua afraid of? So here, he... It's going to a battle, to a war that doesn't directly affect him. That's not specifically for the Jewish people. It's not specifically uh, being done for the sake of Kibosh Haaretz, but rather defense of a, of a group that he signed an agreement with. Perhaps the same Hashkacha, the same providence, won't reign and won't protect the Jewish people. God says no. In fact, it appears that by virtue of all of them coming out to battle him, it's to his benefit. They're now out of their cities. They're now out of perhaps walled cities and defensible locations. And they're now out in battle in, fee- in the field. Perhaps it's to benefit of Yehoshua to battle them in this way. And Kaddish Baruch says, don't worry, they're yours. Yehoshua's surprise attacks. He walked the entire of the night. Travel entirely at night, again, in the modern world, that may not be a possible difficulty. If we have night vision goggles and all kinds of radars and all kinds of other listening devices. But surprise attack. In verse 10, they surprise them. They shake them. They're, they're, they're shocked. They become undone by virtue of suddenly appearing Yoshua and his people. Va'yir Ad Azeka. 
and they chase after them, they pursue them for great distances, the Jewish people against these kings. In Yud Aleph, Ibn Usam Ibn Yisrael, Hain bin Morad, Beit Charon, Vadonahi Shlichalim, Avanim Yedolot, Bin Hashemayim, Ad Azekav Yamusu. In the course of their running away and their desire to hide away from the Jewish people, God rains down heavy stones from the heavens. It would seem to be some form of <clears throat> some form of a barad, right? That is some sort of a very powerful hail that is strong enough to kill. More people died from the hailstorm than in fact from the Jewish people. From the heavens. God is fighting for the Jewish people. Another sort, source of armament, of uh, military prowess is modern, is the, is the weather. Meteorological uh, assistance. And then here comes the miracle. Yeshua speaks on the day that the nations were given over to him and he says as follows in front of the Jewish people The sun should be still in the heavens of Givon and the moon in the valley of Ayalon. Yeshua stops the sun. The different commentaries describe and, and try to understand how does this happen, how is this physically possible. Isn't this the most monumental miracle of all time, says the Raubag even. He stops nature. He stops the sun from moving. There are a variety of explanations and understandings as to the mechanics of this nace which may be beyond the scope of this particular class. I'll share with you one from the Dat Sofrim, who says that what exactly happens here is that it's rays of sun that remained for Yehoshua, but in fact the ball of the sun continued to move, that it stayed lit up for him. That as much as the, the, the natural flow and sequence of the uh, astrological and the heavenly bodies go... Still, it remained sunny as if the sun had stayed still in the heavens. One possibility. The Malam has a different explanation, it seems, that he says that, no, the sun in fact does stay still, but everything else continued to move, which is incredibly difficult to understand physically. And he says, thus, it requires the full day um, to be still, so that when the next day comes at exactly the same moment, it picks up where it left off, and the rest of the heavenly bodies stay in their place and in their order. Again, very difficult. Nonetheless, Yeshua stops the sun. And it's particularly Le'ene Yisrael. The Jewish people should see it. Why? So it seems that part of what Yeshua is trying to accomplish is the monumental impact and the magnitude of the impact of God on the world, the God of the Jews, vis-a-vis the God's of the other nations, the interaction and the connection of God and the world, and the power and strength of God to control the heavenly bodies, and at the same time, that power imbued and endowed and existing in the body of Yehoshua stops the sun. Practically speaking, it allows them to be able to see the enemy as they run away, but from a more 
religious perspective, but a more philosophical perspective, the the impact on the psychology of the enemy in seeing such an event is powerful and palpable. He stops the sun. It took an entire day, for an entire day, the sun did not move from the skies. The term Ksuva al Sefer Hayashar is the subject of a disagreement, whether it's something from Sefer Bracious, whether it's something from other places in the Torah. That a Kaddish Baruch Hu promises that he's going to do niflaos, he's going to do great monumental uh, miracles before the eyes of the people. The basic shot is what it is. This event happens, it allows the Jewish people to continue to pursue the enemy, and they continue to pursue. God fights for the Jews. That even though nothing like this has ever happened before, in a similar way where God listened to somebody who commanded and demanded that this thing happen, and it in fact happens in that way. How were they able to do this? How is Yoshua able to do this? So that's a very good question. And perhaps one could say that Yoshua may exist in a certain sense above time and above the natural order of the world. A certain commentary explains that way. That Yoshua as a personality, as a giver, as a man, um, exists on a plane and in, 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 in a place that's very different than anywhere that we, in fact, reside. And he's so holy and so righteous in that place that perhaps he's able to manipulate, in some sense, the heavenly bodies as they are. Verse 15. They go back home to Gilgal before they continue the battle, before they continue the war. The Mabim writes that, in fact, they don't exactly return. They desire, they desire to return home, but in fact they don't. As they're going home, they find out that the kings had, had gotten away. And they chase after them. The five kings that were leading this charge hide away in a cave together. And it's found out that they had hid away. Yeshua is told that they were found. They're in this cave in the place called Makeda. Cover the entrance with stones and with watchmen. Why do this instead of just killing them immediately? So there's a notion in Chazal that the manner of the battle of these kings with Yeshua and the sun stopping was on Erev Shabbos. And Yeshua was trying to avoid Chilul Shabbos. It sounds difficult in the sense that he would be so concerned with Chilul Shabbos in these battles and the, the, the Kim of the Mitzvah, Kibbutz Haaretz, and even in Pikuach Nefesh and self-defense in these battles. But nonetheless, it's part of it. And therefore, the notion of killing them immediately seemed to have interrupted the notion of keeping Shabbos into its fullest. At the same time, perhaps, it would seem from the basic shot of the text itself that Yoshua has something else in mind, and that is to make a public spectacle of these five gentlemen, of these five kings, so that the nation can watch and hear what it is that he's going to tell them. In Yud Tess, in verse 19, 
And he says to the other people, go, follow, pursue after the rest of the army, of the armies. Go after your enemies. Cut down the, the tail ends of these people. Don't let them get back to the cities. God has given them to you. Yeshua's command is powerful, it's forceful, it's strong, it's direct to the point. Continue to battle. Until they completely had destroyed them. That there's only a few people, stragglers left, but they really had struck a very powerful and eliminating blow. In verse No one spoke out against, no one spoke up against the Jewish people, no one had the goal to speak out, or to speak in the presence of the Jews with respect to what they had accomplished and what they had done. They returned to Makeda in peace. And now, Yoshua makes a spectacle of these kings. Open up the cave. And take out these five men from the cave. These five kings who started up with the Jews by virtue of fighting with Givon, Yoshua takes them out of the cave. Verse 24. Yoshua calls to all of the men of Israel. And he says to his ketsinim, his captains, his leaders, as follows. Kirvu, draw close. Simu esraglechem al tzavrei hamelachim ha'elu. Put your feet on the necks of these kings. Ve'yikrivu ve'yasimu esraglechem al tzavreihem. And they do so. Ve'yomer aleim Yoshua. These guys have no idea why they're doing this. The kings have no idea what's going on. Yeshua has something in mind. Yeshua says as follows in verse 25, Aleihem Yehoshua, Chizku These are words that we've heard before. Don't be afraid. Don't be fearful. Be strong. Be confident. This is what God is going to do to all of the nations that fight against you and that you fight against. You will be able to put your feet on their necks, and you will be able, and you will be powerful enough to destroy them. Yoshua kills them himself. Perhaps that he's simply standing there, perhaps out of some level of respect that they are kings, does the grand leader of the Jewish people in fact kill them. Nonetheless, they hang them each on their own tree. They're hanging there until the night. And again, as we've seen before in other cases, they hang till the night, and then at night, Yoshua orders his people to take them down and to, in some form or fashion, bury them. The sunset is coming. Yoshua commands that they should take them down from the, from the trees. And they throw them or place them into the cave where they were hiding. They put stones on the front of that cave until this day or until someday afterward. Essentially, he buries them. He shows them some form of uh, respect in death. Again, perhaps lifting Mishira Sadin above the letter of the law, perhaps out of respect for the land, that them hanging there, some level of impurity, burying them, 
takes them completely out of the picture. Yoshua then moves along. He leaves nothing left. He does to that king as he did to the king of Jericho. In other words, he immediately takes the town near where the cave was. And Yeshua continues. Again, Yeshua is really moving in a certain direction with respect to his war. He's essentially cutting across the land, cutting the land in half, essentially capturing the entirety of the southern portion of the land of Israel. In the next chapter, we'll see the northern battle. He fights in a place called Livna. Again, the same thing. They fought with Livna, They fought with them in a similar manner, and they destroyed them and they captured them. Verse 31, So here it gets a little bit different, meaning the language changes a little bit. They come to a place called Lachish. They essentially siege to the city. They lie in wait. They rest near it. They fight in it, as opposed to Vayilachim im Livna, Vayilachim Ba, there seems to be a slight difference in the two in the two languages. It takes them till a second day to destroy Lachish, not a second battle, but a second day of battling. The end result is the same, just like Yericho before it, just like Livna before it, just like Makeda before it. All of these towns get destroyed. As Allah Hora Melech Gezer la Azores Lachish, Yakel Yeshua Ves Yamo Adultihish Ilosarid, leaves nothing left. Here Horam leaves his town to fight the battle, whereas many of the other battles are taking place in their towns. This king leaves his town and is destroyed in the battlefield. They fight for it. Even though the king of Eglon was mentioned before, here they're fighting. Eglon, again, is further, further west. They take it that day. And they take care of that town. Just like they did with Lachish, and they did with Livna, and they did with Yericho. All the different towns are taken care of in the same manner. No one is left behind. No one is left. Maybe, maybe, as we saw in one place, a few stragglers survive. But essentially, nothing is left of these towns. They come to Chavron. Now, as we'll see later on, we'll hear about Kalev. In Kalev taking Chavron, so there's a discrepancy, it seems, between the psukim, between the two verses. Um, at the same time, one could approach that essentially, that since it's Yehoshua's battles, that in the overall sense, Yehoshua is the one who may get credit for these wars. But in fact, it may have been, let's say, Kalev as his general in that location, um, who in fact took that town specifically. But it's Chevron, our, fam- our favorite city, the city of Chevron. They take 
Chevron, they take everything that's there in the same manner, again, as all the other battles. They fight in a place called Same thing over and over and over again. The repetition of it uh, implies the regularity of it and the obvious nature of these wars and the obvious outcome and results of them as well. In a certain sense, it's a summary set of sukkim here that you have at the end of uh, chapter 10. Yoshua destroys all of these areas. The Har, the mountains, the Negev, right? You have the, the deserts, the Shvila, is the valleys, right? You have the Ashedos, Rashi explains the Ashedos is Makom, Shemeha Gvaos, Shofrim, maybe the, the estuaries, the areas where the waters are. In all of the kings of all these towns, he leaves nothing left. And all of the people are destroyed. As God had commanded. Again, I'll point out something that the Das Ofrim emphasizes over and over again. is the notion that this is not what the Jewish people are. and This is not who we are as a people. This is not what we're about. We're not about murder and death and killing and blood. Again, the Dasofim reiterates the point that the text tells us that this was not out of Yahushua's want and desire. Rather, this is what a Kodesh Baruch Hu asks. We must free the land, purify the land of these nations and of these peoples, and this is the manner in which it's going to happen. It's very bloody. We're talking about many, many, many multitudes of people being killed here. But this is not who we are. What is that verse telling us? The Rashi is This is describing the notion of the of the the, the scope and the breadth of Yoshua's uh, destruction and capturing in the south from east to west. God fought for the Jewish people. And Pamachas means, it seems, that it never they never stumbled. They never had a setback. They just went and they went and they fought and they battled and they destroyed. There were no setbacks. And then Yahushua, after all the battles in the south, and after he takes all the different areas of the south and he captures all of these towns, destroys all the people and destroys all the kings, he returns home to the home base in Gilgal. Gilgal is still the seat of the Jewish people. They have not yet moved into the different communities. The land has not been divvied up to the different tribes. So Yahushua returns to the spiritual center and the physical center of the Jewish people back at the entrance to the land, just near the Yardin at a place called Gilgal. Continue tomorrow with Perak Yud Aleph with chapter 11.